Today, I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Knoll. He is the Fisher Professor of Natural History at Harvard University and the author of A Brief History of Earth, Four Billion Years in Eight Chapters, which we'll be talking about today. Andy, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for taking the time to be here. So, Andy, you cover four billion years in eight chapters. Do you think we can cover four billion years in one hour? <laughs> you have to be selective. That's the thing. Yeah, definitely. So I'm, I'm thinking it would be great to do just a very broad overview, like set the stage of so we can go back before before the Earth was even created, which is remarkable to even think about. Um, I'll try and set the stage and you let me know if I've if I've got things correct. So 13 billion years ago, the universe is formed. There's a bunch of just hot matter everywhere. And eventually it starts coalescing into stars and the stars group into galaxies. And like 4.6 billion years ago, our stars formed our sun. And, and then there's like, this is where it gets foggy for me. There's probably leftover particles around and they start just coalescing due to gravity. And then eventually that creates planets. More or less. Uh, when the, Gravity is really what, well, gravity is the architect of the universe in many ways. Mm -hmm. And so gravity is what pulled materials together in our neighborhood of the universe to make the sun. And a lot of, not a lot of material, but some material ended up revolving around that sun, making a disk. And then you're right, just little pieces collided with each other to make bigger pieces. And the bigger they got, the better their gravitational heft. And we ended up with a relative handful of planets and mm -hmm. some leftovers, which we see today in the asteroid belt. Mm -hmm. So what is it that leads to planets as opposed to the sun having like giant rings like Saturn that, that flow together, but don't necessarily coalesce? Well, that's an interesting question. And I'm probably not the best person to, uh, to tell you that. But uh, my understanding of, of Saturn is that many of those rings are probably fairly young. And at least some of them have to do with material from geysers and volcanoes uh, coming from some of its moons. So in, in the case of the Earth, I, I think it's just basically angular momentum that causes materials that surround this great mass of mostly hydrogen and a little helium. And once you get them into those, uh, and they may have been in more or less ring-like structures, and then it's, it's a game of bumper cars. Once they start colliding, uh, basically the scene is set for a small number of objects to get bigger and bigger and take up most of the mass. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So this is about 4.5 billion years ago now, and we have something resembling an Earth-sized planet, but it probably doesn't look anything like Earth at this stage. That's about right, yeah. So what, what is that picture? So now we're, now we're pretty much at the beginning of Earth's story. Well, it, it, it's interesting. Um, many people, when they talk about the early Earth, emphasize how hot it is in the interior. And, and there's no mm -hmm. question that uh, the very early Earth was hot enough that it melted on the inside. And heavier materials, particularly iron, went to the center. That's our core. Uh, and then other, other materials uh, went to the outside, so the mantle and the beginnings of, of the crust. Um, for the first maybe 10, maybe a couple of tens of millions of years, uh, Earth's surface was what has commonly been called a magma ocean, 
as just this sort of roiling black crust of basalt, a little bit like what you'd see if you saw an eruption on Hawaii, for example. But wow. fairly soon, that cooled off and gases that had been essentially uh, injected into the atmosphere uh, started to condense. So water vapor condensed to water. And so within, you know, at least tens of millions of years, Earth starts to be a planet that's quite distinctive because it has oceans. Mm -hmm. So this next question might get into what your research actually does on a day-to-day -day basis. How do we know all of that? How did we come to these conclusions? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And the, the answer in a sense is all around you. Um, every rock on this planet tells a story. And when you hike into the Grand Canyon or drive you know, along road cuts or go to a, a, a sea cliff, if you know how to read it, there's a chapter in earth history in, in each of those things. It, it turns out that the rock record on earth takes us back just about 4 billion years. And that's the sort of thing I do for a living is try to read that rock record and try to understand what it's telling us about the history of life and, and environments. Now, what's interesting about that is the rock record only goes back 4 billion years. And I've just been talking with some certainty about things that happened four and a half billion years ago. Mm -hmm. And for that, we really have two sources of information. One is meteorites because most meteorites are the leftover bits of the early solar system, and they can tell us about the types of materials that aggregated to form the Earth. And then um, a little bit of physics goes a long way. So uh, if we accrete a body the size of the Earth that has a fair dollop of uh, radioactive materials in it, it's going to melt. And you can actually predict through models what the consequences of that melting should look like. And fortunately for us, that's about what they do look like. So it's meteors and modeling. Mm -hmm. So the modeling, is that computational modeling? Pretty much, yeah. So does that mean pretty much all of that is, is within the last, I don't know, 50 years or so? Yeah, that, that's right. Um, you know, if just knowing how old the Earth is and knowing how old different uh, events in Earth history are is fairly recent. Uh, as you might imagine, the, the sort of general capacity to talk about the age of the Earth came from the, dis the, the uh, discovery of radioactivity by Becquerel around the turn of the last century. And, you know, within a few years, some scientists started to use radioactivity to estimate the ages of ancient geologic formations. And their estimates actually turned out to be not bad. But it wasn't really until the 1950s with advances in so-called mass spectroscopy, which is the tools you need to uh, measure uh, the relevant chemistry. And that went hand in hand with mapping efforts by countries all over the world to really just understand what was in the older terrains of the earth, the one that didn't have obvious fossils and so therefore hadn't gotten the same attention. And in combination, that mapping and the ability to tell the ages of the materials that you map 
gave rise to this deeper understanding of, you know, long, deep earth history. Mm -hmm. So if you have a certain amount of radioactive material and you know the half-life, you can guess how, how long it took to get to that stage, but you need to know the initial amount that it decayed from. So how do you figure out that? Yeah, well, our, our, our great friends here are minerals called zircons. Uh, you've, you might have a ring of cubic zirconium, which is a synthetic zircon. But zircons are interesting because when they form, their mineral lattice allows um, uranium into it, but it doesn't allow lead. And that's useful because when radioactive uranium, and there, there's two isotopes of uranium that decay to lead, um, that any lead that they produce inside the zircon stays there. So zircons are wonderful because they give us several clocks in one, uh, clocks that are well calibrated. And we know that any lead inside those crystals came from the decay of radioactive uranium. Uh, and, and the great, the really, you know, zircons have been the workhorses of telling, you know, quantifying time in earth history. And one of the great things is that while we don't have any rocks older than 4 billion years, we have isolated zircons that accumulated in younger sandstones that go back about 4.4 billion years. And they have, you know, they really preserve some secrets of Earth's very early history. Wow. So yeah, to the average person, I guess they both seem like rocks, but then to, to an expert who knows what they're doing, you can tell these different things apart. Well, that's, that's why you go to college. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This would be a good time to talk about your background. So now that we, we kind of understand some of the, the basic methodology, how did you decide to, to pursue this as a career? Well, um, I, I grew up in a rural part of what's called the Pennsylvania Dutch country. And where I grew up, you know, we didn't know about a lot of professions. So, you know, when I was in high school, I knew you could be a doctor, I knew you could be a lawyer, and I knew you could be an engineer. And I knew I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer, and I was pretty good at math, so I went to engineering school. And then uh, being really uh, you know, thoughtful, at the end of my freshman year, I knew I didn't want to be an engineer either. And so what I did, basically the first semester of my sophomore year was just took or audited every science and math class I could. And what I found was I really liked a geology class. That was all new to me, but it was exciting. And I really liked a biology class. And I, I remember sitting in my room one night and thinking, wait a second, these are taught like they're different universes, but isn't it true that in a lot of ways, they're two sides of the same coin? And it was really that realization that I could integrate, you know, earth science and biology that set me on my course. Right. It's like biology follows from once you kind of have the give it axiom of like life emerges, but we still have no idea how that happens, or at least maybe, maybe now we have a better idea of it. But it uh, we have some obvious. idea, but we have a lot to learn. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So is that what you decided to pursue in your PhD looking at early life or did that come later? Well, uh, again, it was something that, that happened in college that, that set me off. I, I was taking a botany course and had to do a term paper. And what I ended up writing about was the then both exciting and controversial idea from the work of Lynn Margulis that 
the chloroplasts in algae and, and plant plants were descended from once free-living cyanobacteria, that is photosynthetic bacteria, that were basically captured and reduced to metabolic slavery. You know, I, I just thought that was the best idea I ever heard. And to be honest, I still think it's one of the best ideas I ever heard. But while I was doing my research for that paper, I would bump into these papers about a man named Elzo Barghorn at Harvard, who was actually finding fossils that were much, much older than the fossils of animals, you know, the conventional tracks, trails, and skeletons that uh, people thought of as the fossil record. And that was tremendously exciting because that was the interval in which the great events of biological history, such as the origin of, of photosynthesis and eukaryotes played out. And, and you know, that turns out to be 90% of the history of life. You know, it's nice to think about dinosaurs and trilobites, but they're latecomers. Uh, and in order to really find out about the long history of life, the long history of the environments that support that life, you have to look at ancient rocks. And I fell in love with that fairly early on. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So it would be good to, to have another timeline put in here. So we have the earth formed and also started cooling around 4.5 billion years ago. And then at what point does life emerge? And then at what point does multicellular life emerge? Okay, good, good questions. Um, the oldest rocks that are well enough preserved that we can ask the question about life being present are about three and a half billion years old. And there's no question that there were microbial communities on the seafloor. There was a microbial carbon cycle. There was a microbial sulfur cycle. So basically we run out of rocks before we run out of evidence of life. So I think, you know, as a broad thing, 4 billion years, perhaps more is when life originated. Now, the other thing to know about the early earth is that it had no oxygen. So today we live beneath an atmosphere with 21% oxygen, but on the early earth, it didn't exist. You and I would have suffocated and asphyxiated in minutes on that earth. And so going forward from the earliest history of, of life, the environmental history of oxygen and the biological history of organisms kind of go hand in hand. Um, now you ask about multicellular life, there are lots of groups. This is primarily um, a property of what are called eukaryotic cells or organisms. That's organisms like you and me that have membrane bounded nuclei in that as opposed to bacteria. Um, and many, many different groups of eukaryotes have evolved what I'd call simple multicellularity just sheets of cells or balls, things like that. Very simple, not much differentiation of different cell types. But about half a dozen groups, including animals, have evolved complex multicellularity. And our oldest evidence for complex multicellularity in animals is only about 575 million years ago. That's you know long after the origin of life, long after the origin of eukaryotes but it comes at a time when oxygen is increasing in the atmosphere. Wow, and oxygen is increasing because of photosynthesis? Well, photosynthesis is half the story. It turns out 
you know, if you just look at the carbon cycle today, I can have all the photosynthesis I want, but you know, as we're talking, you and I are actually respiring, which is basically running the photosynthetic equation backwards. You know, we're taking organic matter, combining it with the oxygen and making CO2 and water. So if, if um, respiration matches photosynthesis, nothing changes. So what you have to do to, to change the earth is bury some of that organic material that was made by photosynthesis and keep it away from you know, combining with oxygen. And that's really what allows oxygen then to accumulate in the atmosphere. So at the end of the day, it is not just biology. It's not just uh, the physical earth. It's their interactions. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I guess I was assuming that photosynthesis and using oxygen came with multicellular life, but it comes much earlier. Yeah, I mean, there are bacteria that make oxygen, and they were probably doing so more than two and a half billion years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. Our first evidence of oxygen accumulation in the atmosphere and surface oceans is in rocks that are about 2.4 billion years ago, or 2.4 billion years old. But that probably produced a world that had maybe 1% or a couple percent of today's oxygen levels. So, so there's mm -hmm. oxygen there. And if you're a protozoan, you're just fine. But again, you and I could not have lived in that, uh, in that world. And so it isn't until about 600 million years ago when the geological record tells us that we have much higher levels of oxygen, maybe not quite today's, but certainly enough to support most animals in the oceans. Uh -huh. And how do we know about the billions of year old bacteria? Is it like they're microscopic fossils within rocks or is it something else? Yeah, that, that's right. There's, there's a couple of ways we know. Uh, the most direct way is that these are preserved in the rocks and with a uh, little patience and care, you, you can find them. Um, we also have chemical records. So for example, when you and I die, most of us will disappear pretty quickly, but your cholesterol stands a good chance of preserving over long intervals of time. And indeed, when you look at organic matter in rocks, we do have preserved molecules of biological origin that give us an, another way of looking at this. And then there are other aspects of the chemistry of things like carbon, sulfur, and nitrogen that are hallmarks of biological participation in their cycles on the surface of the earth. So all of those things tell us about the history of life. And then the last one, in some ways, the, you know, the most conspicuous record is that you know, we're used to thinking about reefs made by corals, but for most of earth history, reefs were made primarily by bacterial colonies something called stromatolites. And again, you can go back to those three and a half billion year old rocks that form one of our earliest well-preserved records. And there they are. There were microbial mats forming reef-like structures on the seafloor way back then. Wow. So we have over 500 million years between the start of the earth and it cools. And then we know for sure there's life by 4 billion years ago or around then. So do we know anything about what happened for 500 million years and how we went from no life to life? Well, th those are two different questions. The, the uh -huh. first one is we really don't know 
precisely when life originated. You know, four billion is a not unreasonable round number, but there's no reason that life could have couldn't have emerged, say, 4.4 billion years ago. We we just we just literally don't know. Mm -hmm. So all we can say is that by the time we have a rock record we can read, life is already there. Now the second question, which is a I think one of the most difficult questions in science is how does life arise? Mm -hmm. And people have made progress on that uh, over the last 70 years or so through experiments. Uh, the most famous one was done by a man named, named Stanley Miller, usually called the Miller-Urey experiment. And what Stanley did was took simple chemicals, carbon dioxide, methane or natural gas, um, ammonia and water vapor, put them in a beaker, ran an electric spark through them, which he was, he was trying to simulate lightning going through the primordial atmosphere. And all of a sudden, you know, when, when he started doing that, this brown stuff started accumulating on the sides of his beaker. And when he analyzed that, it had a number of compounds in them, including amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins. And so many, many experiments later, we have confidence that uh, simple, plausible, in fact, likely reactions on the early earth and elsewhere would give rise to the building blocks of life. That is amino acids that make proteins, things called bases that are found and sugars that are found in uh, nucleic acids like DNA. Uh, lipids that are found in membranes. You can make all of those things in the comfort of your own home. Um, the hard part is how we get from there to something as complicated as, as a cell. And, and there has been, again, there's been real progress in reactions that can, you know, not only form uh, what are called nucleotides, that is the, the building blocks of DNA and RNA, but you can actually get them, you know, we know that some of those actually have catalytic properties like proteins. Uh, we, they also carry information. So in a sense, things like RNA are interesting candidates for early biomolecules because they can both do things and store information. And we can actually, you know, we've gotten to the point, not we, the, the, the people who do these experiments of actually evolving RNAs in the laboratory for specific tasks, for getting things to replicate and evolve. And that, that's sort of knocking on the door of life. But what it doesn't get you is things like metabolism. That is how you actually interact, yourselves interact with the environment. And again, there are people who have gone in through a different door and show that you know, there are prebiotic ways to thinking about metabolism. So the grand challenge now is to find out where this sort of RNA approach and the metabolism approach join, and we're not there yet. So like once the materials that are already there can come together and start self-replicating? Yeah, rep replicating and evolving are the key issues. And mm -hmm. we know we can get to that through... RNA chemistry, the real question is how do we then make something that's complicated enough, 
you know, because in, in your cell, you know, you have DNA and your DNA uh, is transcribed into RNA and then that is used to make proteins, but that's all under the direction of proteins. So there's kind of a chicken and egg thing here. Uh -huh. And uh, there's, there's a lot of work. In fact, there's been a lot of progress in the last three or four years. Uh, so I, I think I'm optimistic that our understanding of life's origin will be a whole lot better 10 years ago than it is now. But right now, we, you know, we have, I think we have enough information to have some broad sense of what could have happened. And not only on the earth, there are meteorites that contain amino acids and things like that in them. So the kind of chemistry that Stanley Miller described may go on throughout much of the universe, which gives rise, of course, to the big unknown, which is how many times has that given rise to life in the universe? So looking at amino acids on meteorites, is that leading towards a like thinking this is common, so it must happen elsewhere? Or is it thinking this happened elsewhere and it came to Earth through outer space and it didn't happen on Earth? Well, that, that's a good question. And that's, it's been suggested that meteorites may have brought some important materials for the origin of life to Earth. But I think all that does is kick the can uh, down the field just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I am inclined to think about this as, you know, the kind of reactions we're talking about, I, I think almost certainly would have happened on the early Earth. So we don't necessarily mm -hmm. need to get uh, all our starting materials from meteorites. So I think it's telling us that the kind of chemistry that people think was important to the origin of life is a chemistry that plays out fairly widely in the universe. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So even if it happened elsewhere or knowing that it likely happens elsewhere, it's just about figuring out what, what that universal pattern is. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it's really an empirical question. Uh, you know, I can say with the kind of con you know, confidence only an academic can muster that there must be life elsewhere in the universe. But then if you say, show me, that's very difficult. <laughs> Um, you know, we can hope to go, you know, we have gone to Mars and we can look at other places in our own solar system. Uh, we're rapidly increasing our ability to understand planets in nearby solar systems, that is a couple of light years. But for most of the universe, as near as I can tell, we'll only know about life is if somebody out there tells us about themselves. Right. Not only that, but even on Earth, it seems like for the first, what, three plus billion years, you probably wouldn't know that there was life unless you had a microscope. That, well, that's an interesting question. Um, what the people who study extrasolar planets are interested in is, are there signatures in, say, the atmosphere of a planet that tell us about biology? Um, some people have argued that having an oxygen-rich atmosphere tells us that the earth has life independently of any other information. People argue about that, but it's, it's an interesting idea. But, mm -hmm. but you're right. Um, the, the kinds of things that, you know, large multicellular organisms bring to the picture are fairly recent. You know, for example, there's the uh, fact that the earth has a green tint from plants that actually has a spectral signature when you train an instrument on the earth. And before there were land plants, say 400 million years ago, that signature didn't exist. So, so you're right, there, there are problems. Uh -huh. 
Cool. So where on this timeline does your research actually focus and, and what are some of the things that you've uh, found out over the course of your career? Well, the nice thing is that since I'm kind of an old guy, I've been working at this for a long time. And mm -hmm. so I've studied a, a, a lot of the record. Um, for a number of years, a lot of my research was on the period just before the origin of animals, because I wanted to understand, you know, what was the diversity of life on the eve of animal evolution? And we've learned a lot about that mm -hmm. from the fossil record. And I wanted to find out what the environment, you know, what was the environment like? And did environmental change help to usher in the age of animals? And we found out a lot about that too. And, and mm -hmm. yes, it, it does seem to do so. So That's a lot like of it's on that. I have ago. worked on the oldest terrains in the past. I've worked on younger issues of plant and plankton evolution, animal evolution, mass extinctions. But my heart's kind of in, you know, the, the world that leads up to the familiar world of animals and plants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. My next question was going to be, what motivated you to, to write this book and tackle such an ambitious process? Uh, uh, project, but it seems like you're the perfect person to do it, given that you've had all this experience across well, the whole I don't, time. Well, I, I don't know if I'm perfect, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, Adam, exactly why, why I wrote it. And there were two interlocking motivations. The first is just reading the newspaper and just seeing how many people, particularly in the United States, but elsewhere as well, are either not believing in or are complacent about 21st century global change. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought, well, part of the problem is the average person in America has no idea of the planet we live on. And so I think both from the standpoint that the history of the earth is, is a great story. And, and I think you know you can approach it the same way you'd approach shakespeare that you know it's you're a better person if you understand the planet you live on but that story also provides a framework for thinking about the rapid change in the earth that is happening in your lifetime so that that's really why i wrote it mm -hmm. yeah that makes a lot of sense so, yeah even even for people who are are in the sciences obviously i'm not in 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 geology or anything surrounding this field but so I had like bits and pieces but but you could see that it's not all put together so this is uh very helpful and I'm sure so for for people outside of this specialty how do you think it shifts their their worldview to to know more about earth's history like what's it going to do for the average person well I think there'll be two things that it can do for the average person um one I think in, it can give you more pleasure in life. Um, you know, everybody walks to the rim of the Grand Canyon and goes, ooh, ah, isn't that pretty? But, you know, once you learn something about the earth, you look over the edge of the Grand Canyon, you see a history book. And, and that's kind of exciting that the that yeah. earth has laid out its history for us to, to comprehend. And, and I also think, you know, when that everyone should know that we live at a time where the rate of change in our planet's surface is geologically unusual, if not rare. Mm -hmm. um, you, you're not living at a normal moment in the history of the Earth. You're living at a transitional moment, and that transition has been brought about by the activity 
of humans. And, you know, as you know, the last chapter in my book is about the human earth because humans uh, have changed the earth quite, quite remarkably in many ways. But the penultimate chapter is called Catastrophic Earth and it's about mass extinctions. Mm -hmm. And it's sobering to know that all of the major extinctions that we know of in our planet's history are at times of rapid environmental change. So mm -hmm. we are potentially ushering our world into a time of, you know, geologically unusual and noticeable extinction. Mm -hmm. We should talk about some of those because the first thing that comes to my mind when I think mass extinction event is the, the giant asteroid coming to wipe out the dinosaurs. And that's, that doesn't really have to do with the environment, but I'm sure there are other more local uh, extinctions. Well, it, it is an example of, of rapid environmental change. Um, and, and, and you're right. That's a lot of people's favorite because A, it involves outer space and B, it involves <laughs> dinosaurs. So you know, how could you not like that? Um, but the largest extinction actually much more much larger than than the one that killed the dinosaurs happened about 252 million years ago at the end of the permian period and it's estimated that about 90% of all animal species disappeared during this and and that was caused by volcanism volcanism a million times greater than anything ever witnessed by a human being and so you say well what would volcanism do well, it puts a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere. So there's global warming. Uh, some of the CO2 goes into the oceans, which drops the pH, something called ocean acidification. Uh, and because water masses in the ocean are now warmer, uh, you have a decrease in oxygen levels within particularly the subsurface ocean. Now, if you've been reading the newspaper, you know that those exact things are happening in the 21st century. So in a sense, and this is to, to me an almost staggering statement, but I, but I think it's quite defensible. And that is the only other force in the history of the earth capable of changing the earth in the way that humans are, are doing is just giant volcanoes that happen you know, only on the order of every 30 or 40 million years or so. Mm -hmm. And that, that just underscores the, the importance of humans as a geological force now. We're not, we're not just sitting there benignly on a, a passive and nurturing planet. We're changing the planet. We're changing the biology. We're changing the physical planet um, in ways that probably the only group of organisms ever to change the planet as profoundly as we're doing were those cyanobacteria that introduced oxygen to the atmosphere two and a half billion mm -hmm. years ago. Yeah, that's a good point. I was going to ask you about whether other animals have made any, any similar mass changes to the earth, whether to the, to the atmosphere, like, like in the oxygen case you mentioned, or with humans. Well, I mean, there are, in my way of thinking, all of our planet's history reflects the interplay between earth and life. And, you know, one event that people talk about is when land plants first evolved. We have the first forests. Um, and it turns out that about the same time that we start seeing forests, we have an ice age come in. And a lot of people think that that's related to plants drawing CO2 
out of the atmosphere. So, you know, mm -hmm. when you look back through, there's any number of places where evolutionary events can drive environmental change. And there's just as many where some physically generated environmental event can push evolution. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So we don't, we tend to not look at these mass extinction events or mass changes, at least in the early history, I'm not talking about climate change right now, as we kind of just describe them. We don't call them good or bad. Well, good or good or bad is a, is a, is a value judgment. Um, yeah, and you will see people say, well, you know, the, the end Cretaceous extinction where the asteroid uh, knocked out the dinosaurs, but that essentially allowed for uh, a radiation and diversification of mammals. And, mm -hmm. you know, would we be here had that not happened? And so people might say, well, so mass extinctions are good, but, you know, no dinosaur would ever write the story that way. Uh, uh -huh. know, they, they got wiped out. So, you know, it, it is an agent of change is, is what mm -hmm. we can say. Yeah. So what I'm getting at here is, I guess, once you bring humans into the picture, now we start to, to bring our own subjectivity in. So it's like wiping out the dinosaurs was good because it allowed us to evolve. And we're here because of that. And then climate change is bad if it harms us. Well, I think the thing about, yeah, I think climate change a, will harm us, uh, and B, along with many other things that humans do, uh, changing land use, over-exploitation of species like overfishing, um, pollution, all of those things have an untoward effect on, on the biota. So I think mm -hmm. that, you know, I, I don't feel bad in characterizing those things as as bad for humans. Mm -hmm. and, and the other thing is sometimes you'll read, well, yes, there have been extinctions in the past, but the biota always comes back. And, and that's absolutely true, but it comes back on the time scale of multiple millions of years. So any extinctions that happen in your lifetime are basically permanent in terms of any time scale that you or your descendants can imagine. Wow. So also when when you see these more local changes, um, I, gu I guess an example could be something like um, like an invasive species, one that outcompetes uh, the, the species that were originally yeah. in that environment. Um, if it's unnatural, I guess we tend to see it as a bad thing, but I'm guessing this happens over evolutionary spans as well, where it's so, where it's like we just view it as a natural process of one species taking over. So what, what do you think is the distinguishing line between when this is natural and when it's unnatural? Well, I, I think it's a rate of occurrence. So you're just right. There have been through time invasions of species from one area to another. But with humans, particularly humans moving around the globe, um, the rate at which you know, alien species, if you will, have been introduced to environments has gone way up. And, and not all of them wreak havoc. Uh, in many cases, a species can be introduced to a community and, you know, it'll, it'll just take up residence there and, and diversity is increased a bit. And then sometimes you have, you know, the famous things like kudzu or mussels in Lake Erie that are actually very bad for 
for the communities that they invade. So that, you know, that in a sense, it's a it's a it's a mixed bag. Um, and I, you know, many of our introductions of species are at least indirectly um, intentional. You know, we have lots of plants that have been brought into the United States for ornamental purposes. We have pl plants that have been brought in for for agriculture, and that um, and and as I said, those don't always cause problems, but um, there are problems that are related to even those fairly benign things. So now we, I think we should talk about the call to action um, at the end of the book. So we 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 have that. In the long term, it's like Earth doesn't care about what happens to us because it'll be here long after we're here. And so we have to focus on more short-term issues of, of what should we do about this? Yeah, I, that, that's a good way to phrase it. And I, I think there are certain things, you know, I, I sort of liken this to uh, A Christmas Carol by, by Dickens where the, the ghost of Christmas yet to come visits Ebenezer Scrooge and he's not saying this is what the future will look like but he does say this is what the future will look like depending on your actions and I think we're, we're getting a, a increasingly good view of what that future will look like you know something like 70 percent of all commercial fisheries on earth are fully exploited if not over exploited um, so there's a source of protein for several billion people that could be at risk. Um, Does fully versus over mean like the line at which it would naturally replenish itself? And then if you go yeah, over fully that, means you, yeah, you can, you can sort of catch fish up to a certain level and they will, you know, retain their stock size, but above that, uh, it can actually collapse. I mean, that's what happened in Newfoundland, mm. uh, you know, in the 1950s and the cod have never come back. Um, so, so there's things like that. There's, you know, there's something, you know, huge decreases in insect abundance and diversity and that have been measured in Europe. You know, there's a tendency, well, that's great. I don't like insects, <laughs> but you probably like pollination uh, and, and things like that. Uh, there have been, you know, massive in decreases in the numbers of birds measured in North America. Um, and when we look at the physical earth, it's very clear that A, the earth is warming, B, it's warming because of an increase in carbon dioxide, and C, the major contributor to that increase in carbon dioxide is the burning of fossil fuels. And, you know, when people talk about the, the issue of earth warming you know, much beyond what has happened, there are serious reasons to, to, to be concerned with that. Um, it will affect, you know, in your lifetime, that will affect your life. You know, if you live in California, you know, do you want forest fires like the last couple of years, every year? Um, if you live on the East Coast, do you want to have an increase in the uh, frequency of extreme hurricanes? Uh, if you live in Australia, do you want an increase in the bleaching of corals that's very, fairly rapidly destroying the Great Barrier Reef? Uh, so I think there, I think the good news is that should we choose to do so, 
we can limit these things. Mm -hmm. um, and there are things I think that individuals can do. Uh, you know, and it, it's as simple as what you choose to eat. Um, it's easy to find online the amount of CO2 or CO2 equivalents that's released for every pound or kilogram of protein that we eat. Uh, not surprisingly, beef is way in front of pretty much everything else. So you, you can choose your proteins. You can choose to eat more local foods. You know, there's less of a carbon imprint when you don't fly it from a thousand miles away. Uh, there are things that we can all do is in terms of having more efficient appliances. I mean, cars have come a long way and, you know, many of us now drive at least hybrids if not electric cars and i'll tell you the future of transportation is is, is electric um so there are all those things we can do as individuals there are things that will take major efforts on the parts of government and industry um i think importantly there are now some fairly successful pilot plants for actually scrubbing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere uh, and they're not at scale yet. I mean, the ones that we're doing now are just piddling in terms of, of the issue, but, but with investment, uh, they, they could come down in cost and rise in scale. And then maybe the most important thing is the most obvious one. You can vote wisely. Um, you know, what's gonna happen in the United States or any other country for that matter will depend a lot on our elected officials. And if you would like to see a better world for your grandchildren, maybe it matters who you vote for. That's a good point. So the last thing I wanna ask you about is, is um, your thoughts on the far future of humanity, space travel and terraforming. As a geologist, I, I'm, I'm guessing you might have some opinions on that because there are some people, the futurist types who will say like, you know, maybe they'll catastrophize our future on earth and say, we must look to the stars and terraform other planets if we're to survive. And then others are like, what are you thinking about? We need to focus on our problems here and stay put. Yeah, I, um, I tend to be in the, the latter camp that, that says uh, right now, you know, terraforming Mars is, is a pipe dream. I, I, I have friends who would love to see that happen. Um, you know, the cost is, well, many trillions of dollars uh, at, at least. Um, and ex again, how to do that at scale is something that is hard to contemplate. So I, you know, I know there are people who have this sort of space age version of manifest destiny that we will go to other places because they're there. And, and that mm -hmm. might happen in, in the long-term future. Uh, I wouldn't rule out the idea that some Matt Damon of the future will actually be on a base on Mars and that. Mm -hmm. But I think it's absolutely crazy to think that on any time scale that's relevant to you, me, our children, our grandchildren, that that's going to be a fix for mm -hmm. Earth. I think, you know, whatever our plans for exploration and colonization in the future first and foremost, we have to think about, you know, safeguarding the habitability and diversity of our own planet. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good place to close.
All right. Andy, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it, it was very, very informative. And I hope everyone checks out your book, A Brief History of Earth. Thanks, Adam. This is fun. Thank you.